Thank you again for coming to today's Friday Gallery Talk. Um, my name is Caroline Elliott. I'm the manager of adult programs here at the Hirshhorn. And today we have curatorial intern Deirdre Smith talking to us today about the Solowit works presently on view from our permanent collection. Deirdre is a Master of Arts candidate at George Washington University, focusing on modern and contemporary art. And she has been interning with us since, um, since June in the curatorial department. Uh, now here is Deirdre Smith. All right, hello, and thank you so much for coming today and joining me, and thank you very much to Caroline Elliott. Um, I'm really pleased today to have the opportunity to discuss with you all not just one, I think, really quite wonderful example of Lewitt's work with wall drawings, but um, to a little bit later move upstairs together and discuss the other two examples that are on view, which I think are also quite wonderful, but very different and much later work. So we can really think about how this series um, evolved over time. And uh, we also have a special guest today, somebody who helped install the works upstairs, um, who's a Hirshhorn staff member who I will introduce when we get up there. Um, so that's an exciting opportunity to hear from somebody who had the experience of um, working on installing one of these works. So uh, Lewitt produced over 1,200 wall drawing designs between uh, 1968 when he initiated the series up until right around the time before his death in 2007. And as uh, many or some of you may know, with the exception of um, the very first wall drawing installations, Lewitt produced only the plans and the instructions for the wall drawings. And the process of the execution would be subsequently delegated to other people who were often over the years trained Lewitt assistants who were practiced in the process of interpreting those instructions um, and using the specific techniques that he eventually felt to be the best ones for getting the results that he wanted on the wall. Um, and often this took place not necessarily in the artist's presence, even during his lifetime. Um, this particular wall drawing behind me was originally designed by Lewitt in 1969 and first installed in a gallery in Dusseldorf. Uh, and then it was later installed here in 2008 by two Lewitt assistants who worked over the course of about three weeks. Um, each layer of lines that you see took them about a week to produce, um, moving along the wall together, which is, as you can see, quite a long wall. Um, and so it's not uncommon, particularly in contemporary art, for an artist to work with studio assistants or fabricators in um, making their work for them or in consultation with them. But what I think is a bit unusual um, interesting in the case of Lewitt is the purposefulness and intention with which he approached that situation and the way that he um, framed the relationship between uh, his idea, his, the way that he translated that into his plans, and then the way that the draftsman would eventually translate those plans into the work that you see on the wall. Um, it was you know, not an incidental relationship of wanting to um, work with particular industrial materials or have a certain aesthetic. It was really integral to um, the existence of the works that they be made um, by other people. And um, he specifically wrote about the process um, almost as this intersubjective exchange between himself, the plans, and then the persons who were installing them. Um, and he definitely considered the people who installed the works to be his collaborators. Their names are often listed on the wall labels. Um, and he acknowledged that their decisions in interpreting the plans were 
things that he could not anticipate. As much as he attempted to give very specific instructions, there would always be things that happened during that process that he could not uh, anticipate. So Lewitt is associated with the art movement of conceptualism, and he wrote two very influential essays that served to define conceptualism at that initial moment of its development in the late 1960s. And it's important to note that he was by no means the only artist who was writing and thinking really seriously about that at the time. Um, but I think he did provide some really great writing on it and, um, for lack of a better word, some kind of sound bites for thinking about um, what a conceptual work of art is. And uh, in 1967 he wrote, in conceptual art the idea or concept is the most important aspect of the work. When an artist uses a conceptual form of art, it means that all of the planning and decisions are made beforehand, and the execution is a perfunctory affair. The idea becomes a machine that makes the art. And part of Lewitt's aim with these essays was to move the conversations that were happening around his art and the art of some of his contemporaries away from the idea of the object, and specifically the minimalist object, toward the, toward the notion of the concept or the idea as really what constitutes the work and the driving force behind the work. Um, and I think part of what makes the wall drawings so successful is that they're this really kind of artificially clear example of, um, of how a conceptual artwork would be made or how that would work. Um, so the plans consist of a written certificate which provides a verbal description of the work of art and then also a diagram. Um, and I have a copy of the the diagram for this drawing that I'll show you in a minute so you can see how that is sort of translated onto the wall. Um, the plans are what a museum or a collector purchases when they purchase a Lewitt drawing um, and the original copies are required to be transferred if the work is resold or if the work is loaned. So the works can actually exist in two places at once. In some cases, one of the works upstairs that we'll see was actually recently on view in Belgium for several months. Um, so existing simultaneously in two places, which is interesting. Um, and whoever owns a wall drawing can choose to go through the process of installing it, contracting the Lewitt assistants, preparing a wall, um, getting the materials, but they could also choose not to do that. The Hirshhorn actually owns two examples of wall drawings that have not been installed here, but they're still considered to um, exist solely within the collection of the Hirshhorn. And um, at the same time that they could choose to either install or not install the works, um, a person could also choose to paint over a work once it's installed, um, which I think is an interesting aspect of them, that they're, um, in spite of all the, the sort of work that goes into them and the way that they kind of really take a place within the architecture of a museum or a home or a building, office building, they're in some sense considered to be temporary because the work of art is constituted within the plans. And as you can imagine, this can create some complicated situations. For example, there was a lawsuit just last year involving um, a collector who had loaned the certificate and diagram of a wall drawing to a gallery. The gallery somehow lost the certificate and he sued them for a breach of contract because part of the complication was that the Lewitt studio you know, even though it kind of seems like this disembodied contractual thing, it's not like just going to City Hall and getting another copy of something. You know, they, they really considered that initial transfer of the signed document to be the transfer of the work of art. So uh, that's interesting because 
it still has these kind of ambiguous ties to a more traditional work of art or in a more traditional ties to something physical as much as it is really constituted in the idea. And that gets to the heart of what, what I find really compelling about the LeWitt drawings um, because on the one hand you have an artist who says that the plan is sort of the most fundamental aspect of the work. But on the other hand, you know, he says that he wants them to be installed by human hands. He considered the, the installed wall to be the um, optimum form, is how he referred to the actual um, installed wall drawings. And along with that idea, you know, he set up, in addition to the instructions for a specific plan, there were sort of all these other instructions that he came up with over the years in terms of really specific materials that he wanted used. Um, the people who did it, obviously, typically would be trained <laughs> individuals. Uh, and another thing that goes along with that, I, I had the opportunity to speak to um, Al Messino, who's the director of exhibits here, and he was telling me about the process of just preparing the wall. Um, it's this interesting thing. Uh, Lewitt, you know, wanted to work on the wall to produce a work of art that was completely two-dimensional, that would be completely flat, as opposed to the sort of more traditional idea of making a canvas that you try to have look three-dimensional or not, but that you place that on the wall afterward. And he wanted to work directly on the flat surface of the wall. But um, I guess over the years he found that most walls were not actually quite flat enough, and there's a really involved process of um, sanding and skim coating with plaster and priming it. Um, that, that really kind of comes to take on more what you would do with a canvas. You know, you prime a canvas before you paint on it, and a wall drawing, uh, the wall needs to be primed before the drawing can actually take place. So before we go upstairs and um, think about uh, two later examples of the wall drawings, I wanted to share with you... Um, what the uh, actual plans for the drawings look like, and I can pass this around because we're a small group. So you can see these reproduced in catalogs and on websites. The certificates always took the same format. They had uh, a first page that would have a verbal description of the work, and then on the second page it would have this sort of schematic diagram that you see there. And um, looking at, looking at the, the diagram, what do we see on there? What, what are sort of like the building blocks of what Lewitt's using to produce what we see here? Lines, right, but, and specifically what, what types of lines, right. So he, he assigned um, a set of four lines and then in a lot of the initial ones he'll say, you know, all four part combinations of lines going in various directions, so that's horizontal, vertical, and then diagonal lines going in both directions at 45 degrees. Um, and you can see those are the elements of what he has combined here. And then also he would designate where on the wall it was actually supposed to happen. So where is, where is this work positioned with regard to the wall? Cent yeah, <laughs> it's supposed to be in the center of the wall and then moving um, from end to end. I think it, well, I mean, it made a difference for the people who were installing it. I know that they used a, a laser straightener, which is not typically common, but they were working with a more unusual wall. But that's, I mean, that's part of the idea. So he has this plan, and then when it gets translated into an actual space, there's always kind of changes that have to happen. And during his lifetime, he would specifically make a new plan, thinking about the proportions of where it would go. That was always a consideration that 
uh, that had to be taken into account because it wasn't, I mean, some of them are designed for specific walls, but in many cases they're not. And even if they are, they could be reinstalled somewhere else. So I think that's a good point to go upstairs and kind of keep in mind that plan and how I think that either does, like both does and does not correspond to what we actually see here and then go upstairs and kind of think about how that happens with uh, very different looking works. Okay, so Fluit was working with um, variations on line directions in graphite downstairs. What is the what is the visual language or what are sort of the components of the work that he's doing up here? Um, these were both installed at the Hirshhorn in 2003 by a team of seven people. They went, the installations went on um, simultaneously. He's incorporating um, geometric forms instead of just lines, so it really it does take on more of this feeling of, a, of an image a lot more than the one downstairs, which I think still kind of looks more like a, a diagram or a drawing. Um, and Lewitt was, I don't want to say necessarily criticized, but certainly questioned by people when he was making these works, um, who I think felt that they, they moved away from the, the subtlety of his original intention. And his response to that was basically, you know, all variations means all variations. I'm still working with the same sort of techniques and ideas, but I've just moved on to other, other variations in the ideas, using shapes, using different colors. But I think they were produced in very much the same way, with the exception that I think increasingly he relied more on his assistants who would be able to interpret the plans. But they're still produced in very much the same way. Um, and I'd like to take this time to introduce Larry Colbert on the Hirshhorn staff in the registration department. And um, he had the opportunity to work on um, a LeWitt installation at the Washington Convention Center and then subsequently work on these drawings which had um, two trained LeWitt assistants and then a crew of local people that Larry had assembled for the previous installation and then they worked again here. And I had the opportunity to speak to Larry the other day about his experiences installing the works and sort of the process of interpreting the instructions from Lewitt and how they translated to what we see here. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to your experience and particularly the, the words that Lewitt, um, the directive that came from Lewitt with regard to installing the specific type of work and how that guided your experience. Hi, my name is Larry Colbert and I'm an employee at the Hirshhorn. And in 2003, I was hired by Saul Lewitt uh, to paint these with uh, six other people. And I'm gonna be brief about the process. Um, you, you, I don't know whether you can see it from back here or not. We, we divided in the center, and Patrick Burns did the right side, and I did the left side. And then when we finished, we joined the others on this wall. It started off, they would lay graphite lines and begin to paper tape and then gesso uh, this wall while we were doing this one. And the instructions from Saul LeWitt was never to paint the same brush stroke twice. So when you get from further back, uh, you can't really see it. But what he said was, if you do not paint the same brush stroke twice, it'll sort of uh, make your eye, if you look at a painting, there are the lines are drawn like this, your eye's naturally gonna go up and down. If you look at a painting that goes left and right, it'll sort of move you left and right. So what he wanted us to do was never to paint the same brush stroke twice. So we had it taped off and we did the 
black because the white wall was already done. So what I did was basically came along the wall and in this section, I just went like this. And on another one, I went like this. And I tried not to do the same brush stroke twice. And when it finally dried, if you stand and you look at it from the side, you can see that the brush strokes are completely different. And when you move away, it's supposed to do something to your eye. And we finished this painting and then we went over here and we were told that on this one, it was already taped off and, and gessoed. So when we came in, there was a scaffolding up. Now, I was to do yellow and blue and someone else did red and another color. The reason being is because when you're working with only two colors, you only have two things to worry about. So we went in this one and these are also not supposed to be, the, the, no brush stroke is supposed to be repeated twice. So when you stand this way, you can't see it. But when you come to the side, you can see the variance of the brush strokes. And uh, that, that was the process. And uh, we completed it. And the crew was uh, happy to be on it. And like I said, this is the third thing that we, we did. We did a, a wall, a 80 foot cylinder at the Washington Convention Center as well. So that's pretty much the process. Okay. Okay, let's say uh, you're gonna go, you're gonna do the red. So the thing is, is to, the line is already there. So what you do is you come slightly outside with your tape line and it has to be perfect. So when you're, you go along with the tape line and you put it down and you put it all the way around and then you come over and you gesso just inside of the block. And after the gesso's there, you go ahead and you paint. Now, like I said, I did, uh, I did yellow. Other people did other colors, but when you're painting, you have to go along. Some people got coverage the very first time. So when they went, they, they went like this and they, got, they, they had pretty good coverage. But certain colors only are supposed to be done a certain amount of times because it'll change the actual color itself if you, if you go over it too many times. But that's how we did it. We, we've done just outside, taped it, gessoed, and then when we were doing another line, we came just outside. And you can, if you come up close, you'll see some mistakes, some. You'll see white lines in between, and when you pull everything off and it's there, there's no way to go back. Because to paint, uh, uh, let's say this little bit of purple, it would show. So that was the, uh, that was the process. Yes, yes, we, like I said, we had scaffolding. So I would come over and I would do a yellow and I would let it dry and I would go and I would do another yellow. So I don't know exactly how much time it elapsed, but. Uh, if someone, anyone working around me was not allowed to be in this area while I was doing this, they would have to be off somewhere else to let this process cure. So that way you don't get runs in the paint when, you're, when you go along and, you, and you're painting and you're pulling tape, you don't want to mix. So, you know, I did a yellow and 
Then I did the next yellow, and then and the person doing purple was over there. So there was no mixing. In, in. I can't remember how long it actually took to dry, but um, I would I pretty much say it was you do one and it would be that would be it for the day because you don't want to make you don't want to take that chance you know the paint will dry but it always has um, a shelf life where it's, it's still wet so there was plenty to do as you can see so that was that was pretty much the process and I am I'm not surprised but I'm I'm extremely happy uh, to see the precision you know, in the, uh, in the actual paint itself. And if you come up close enough, you can see where we had the blue painted right here. And then when the red was done, the red was over, but there's still a little line. It's like a gesso line, so you have to really know how much gesso to put on. If you put on too much, this will show up. But it's not, it's not something that shows up when you stand back. And... Uh, it's a great piece of work. So, did Saul quit come as the work? No, I, uh, I never had a chance to meet Solowit. He basically did instructions from the Washington Convention Center in 2002 and uh, this in 2003. So, none of us actually met him um, and he never saw the work. You mean in the mixing? Uh, well, that was done by the New York crew. The rest of them uh, I hired. Everyone on that plaque's name, but uh, Thomas and Megan, and they're from New York, and they were charged with all of the mixing. Those were the Littlewood assistants, yes. So they were charged with mixing the paint. I don't know uh, how much of what and how much of the other, uh, because they were working on that. And we were, we were so busy worrying about taping the lines. And uh, that, was, uh, that took an extreme amount of precision. You know, just drawing the lines and then having to tape over the same lines and do the gesso. So that kept us busy. And we didn't really have a chance to see the, uh, the, the makeup of the, of the paint. No, they, they, had all the, uh, they had all the paints mixed. And uh, like I said, some, some of the paints are two coats and some of them are four. I think the red, the red is four. Um, but as far as uh, the yellow was mixed, I had to do two coats of yellow. And uh, like I said, the red had four. But there was, there, you know, that's, that's pretty much what I understood was that um, it's already mixed and we had to be concerned with the precision in the painting. I mean, I think my understanding is that um, in the years leading up to the time before he died, I mean, everything was really down to a science. You know, everything is, is documented. The in specific instructions regarding, you know, wall preparation or um, 
material choices, those had been transmitted not by Lewitt directly, but by you know the director of his studio, and then after his death, his daughter. Um, so those were always he was always kind of like coming up with the ideas and then passing them off to other people intentionally, so that it was this whole sort of you know machine as he referred to. And my understanding is that I mean there's there's such a large core of people who are trained you know, Bilowit or had worked on them over the years, and then people who have worked on one installation or two installations, so they would, they would have the facility to at least uh, work on a drawing based on that experience. And there's almost this sort of oral history between the draftsmen that I think um, leads me to believe that it will continue in a similar way. You know, and as Larry was saying, Lewitt wasn't even present during during this installation. So, I mean, the years up before his death, he wasn't really present, but they were being installed in, um, you know, I think attempting to follow the, the kind of the tenor of his instructions up to that point. Well, he said, he said that if anybody, you know, diligently tried to follow his instruction, the question was if there is, um, uh, could be like a fraudulent or an inauthentic Lewitt. He said if anyone tries to diligently in, um, follow his instructions, they've produced an authentic Lewitt, irrespective of whether or not they own it or if they've seen it. I mean, and it's an interesting question. You know, I, I think that's really interesting, but a professor of mine said that, you know, if you could do that, but then if you start trying to get people to pay to come see it, you know, it could create a, a complicated situation. But, I mean, that at least at one point was his thinking on it, that, you know, anybody could... Could tr could try their best to to just follow the instructions and make it, and that would be an expression of his idea that he would respect as such. If you are an artist or mur uh, if you're a muralist and uh, you know the process, I would imagine you could uh, try to get away with something like that. And for us that worked on it, who knew the process, we just know better. You know, it's. It's not something that you would do. It's, it's such a joy to uh, have your name associated with all of it that none of us would even think about doing that and never have. But we were never told, uh, you know, you are bound by, you were bound con contractually so that you cannot even think about redoing this. We, it was never even said. It, it's just a given that we would be okay. Um, are there any other questions? All right, well, thank you so much, and uh, thank you very much to Larry, and I encourage everybody to get up close and think about those, uh, look at those various brush strokes, because it'll totally change the way you see these. But yeah, thank you very much. <laughs>